the What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And uh, I know I've taken a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast. We're going to get back into things in full swing. And who better to start with today than Rob Butcher, who is the CEO of an organization called Swim Across America. Many of you have probably already heard of the organization. So first of all, let me welcome you, Rob. I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's, it's wonderful to be here, and thanks for, uh, for allowing us a few, uh, some time today. Yeah, and uh, a shout out to our friend uh, Barbara Palmer, who did the introduction. Um, she's a great connector. And thank you for pointing me in the direction of the Brand on Purpose podcast that you did um, not too long ago to get some background. I actually strongly uh, recommend it and really enjoyed hearing your conversation with Aaron and uh, your, um, your board member, uh, Pam Ryan, who was amazing as well, and a fellow uh, Bostonian, or at least living in Boston now. One of the things I'd love to get started with is, and then we'll wind in our uh, mutual Soviet sort of uh, Slavic, you know, history in together. But I do want to start by telling listeners what Swim Across America does, those that don't, and how you've raised nearly $100 million to, to really put toward fighting cancer or making waves to fight cancer as your tagline um, stands out. Tell us a little bit about the, the background of the organization. So some of your listeners may remember Terry Fox. And in the early 80s, Terry Fox was a Canadian. And he was in his early 20s. And he was attempting to run from the East Coast of Canada to the West Coast of Canada. And he was a cancer survivor. And he, uh, he got about three quarters of the way through. And unfortunately, his cancer returned. And um, he passed away on the run, and he wasn't able to finish it. Uh, but Terry Fox was a hero because of his inspiration and his, his desire to live life. And so there's a gentleman named Jeff Keith, and Jeff um, himself was a sarcoma survivor and had lost his leg. Uh, Jeff had some childhood friends, Matt Bossler, Hugh Curran, uh, Jack Salerno and others. They, they all grew up together. They all went to Boston College together, Holy Cross together. Uh, in the New England area. And Jeff had this idea, this vision that let's finish what Terry was not able to finish. And so as crazy as it sounds, in the summer of 1984, they started in Boston and uh, basically ran a marathon every day for the next nine months, Jeff Keith did. And it was called Jeff Keith's Run Across America. And they finished uh, 1985 in LA. Um, Along the way, they met celebrities like um, oh gosh uh, President Ronald Reagan was probably the highlight they met him twice um, and others along the way and it just became a really sort of big inspiring thing and they raised a million dollars for the American Cancer Society in 1984-85 and, and this was at a time when there was no internet there was no social media there wasn't even fax machines so it was literally tin cupping its way across the country and so when they got there Jeff went to grad school at USC and on that run was a gentleman named Matt Bossler and Matt came back uh, to the New England area, and he was going to start his life working in the professional um, search firm business. But Matt was still so inspired to, to do something. And triathlons were just starting to come into Advent at that time. And so Matt had this vision of, let's do a charity swim. No one had ever done a charity swim before. We were coming off the 1984 Olympics a few years later before the 88 Olympics. And so they knew some of the swimmers, Rowdy Gaines and Steve Lundquist, Craig Beardsley and others, um, Summer Sanders. And so they got together and did an original charity swim across Long Island Sound, which is 
13, 14 miles, depending on how you swim it. Um, but that charity swim only raised $5,000. And the boat on that, that they were on, that the, that was carrying like 40, 50 people, actually had too many people on it, unfortunately, unfortunately sunk. So you lose a $60,000 boat, but you make $5,000 for cancer research. Not a really good way to start a charity. No, no. Um, but nonetheless, if you know anything about swimmers, you know anything about athletes and their DNA, they were undeterred and they were inspired and they kept moving on and moving on and persevering. And you know, ultimately, this charity swim model has grown to 20 swims now in our 33rd year that has raised, as you shared, um, about $100 million for cancer research. Well, it's amazing. And uh, we'll talk more about some of the uniqueness about what you do and who you get involved with. But let's talk a little bit more about your involvement and how you sort of got attracted to this, um, you know, with these amazing founders and going from the land race to, you know, the um, the swimming race. I guess eventually they have to do the biking yeah. or you'll have to do the biking so you can create this amazing virtual, uh, you know, triathlon. So I, I did... I grew up a swimmer doing summer league swimming. That was the extent of what I, I knew. And in high school, I um, quit soccer where I had been for 10 years and I got into swimming. And, and swimming for me, Aaron, was not a choice. Um, I grew up in a home with a stepdad who was very abusive, alcoholic, um, just not a positive environment at all. Um, but I did know swimmers were ones that had fun through my summer league experience and through my, my younger sister, Susie who was a swimmer. And I just thought, I want to be around something that's fun. Um, I'm tired of being depressed. I'm tired of being beat up at home. I'm tired of alcohol everywhere. And so my junior year in high school, I, I walked on the swim team, uh, not knowing a thing about it, um, other than that there was co-ed, which for me, I was very awkward and talking to girls was not something that came very easy. And so I was, I was excited to be in an environment where it was both guys and girls. And some of my best friends um, on that team continue to this day. And so I swam my high school years, my junior, my senior. And for me, swimming was a life preserver. It was a chance for me to find some identity, to find um, a place where I felt safe, a place where I could grow. And so that's what brought me into swimming. I swam through high school four years in, uh, four years in college, uh, swam post-college, um, swam, did some postgraduate swimming at Auburn University. Um, and then I... I I sort of equate this way. I was like Delaware State getting in the NCAA basketball tournament where I was probably the 15th or 16th seed, but I made it into the Olympic trials. I mean, I qualified. I swam fast enough in 2000. And I thought at that time I was done. There was no more swimming in my sort of future. And um, I went to work for NASCAR and uh, I was there for almost seven, eight years. And that's where I met our, our good friend, Barbara, Barbara Palmer. Um, who's become a wonderful mentor and a friend to me over the years. And um, in 2007, um, I heard the words that, you know, none of us want to hear, which is my mom had cancer. And I, I, I had heard cancer before, but if I'm, if I'm really honest, I didn't quite know what it meant. I thought, okay, there's surgery, there's chemotherapy, there's radiation. Any of the three should be able to fix this for my mom, who was what's top of my list of being my hero, my role model, someone I talked to every day before then. And uh, within, unfortunately for my mom, within 11 months, um, she had passed from uh, appendix cancer. And which is a very rare form of cancer, but it's one of those where surgery and chemotherapy are the only options and they're not good options. Either one of them are for appendix cancer. 
and and so I took a sabbatical from NASCAR to be with my mom and to step back. And um, once she passed, I I was reflecting my life. I wasn't married. There was no kids, and it was like what what what's really going to fulfill me now in life? What's really going to drive my purpose? And what am I supposed to do? And my mom and I had had um, you know a number of those conversations, not just when she had cancer, but even before she had cancer. And um, I, I joined an organization at that time called United States Master Swimming, um, which is the version of adult swimmers and triathletes. Uh, this was about six months after my mom passed away in 2008. And I was brought in as a CEO. And it was, um, it was a wonderful experience for me to move from the corporate world into the nonprofit world and deal more so with volunteers and deal with people who are very passionate about a cause and which really attracted me to the organization. And, and while I was there at United States Masters Swimming, that's when I got introduced to Swim Across America. And the CEO, um, who's another mentor of mine today, um, Janelle Jorgensen, Janelle McArdle, um, she and I just really hit it off and I was trying to bring more Swim Across America charity swims to United States Masters Swimming. And I was encouraging our adult swimmers to do, to do more of Swim Across America charity events. And that's when Janelle and I uh, just really developed a deep respect uh, for each other and just a great ability to communicate. And in 2014, she recruited me to the board of directors. And then a year and a half later, Janelle wanted to be a full-time mom. And she tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'd like for you to come run Swim Across America. And that was the fall of 2015 with 2016, my official start date. Well, it's an amazing story and, you know, kudos to you for combining such great passions in your life. And, and I do want to speak to the, um, the, the piece that is uh, really quite unique about what you all do in, in terms of the local, but I do want to thread in something that you and I were emailing and then talking a little bit about because it's a bit unusual that um, you and I both cross paths, at least over in, uh, you know, the Eastern Bloc slash Soviet Union back in 1991. I have a a bit of a funny backstory that I won't bore people with uh, that's in one of my earlier podcasts. Um, Lisa Kalfas, who's a good friend, the CMO of Wenty Wine, spun the, the uh, mic around and, and asked me questions, so I talked about that. But you let me know that <laughs> you were in uh, Budapest in 1991, uh, which was kind of a crazy, troubling time since the Soviet Union was falling apart at that point. And it was quite turbulent, you know, with the tanks in uh, Budapest. Um, tell us a little bit about your connection uh, to Yugoslavia, and I know you did some swimming at that point in time too, and so it, it sort of brings it full circle. It probably goes back to the 20s, 1920s. My, my grandmother, Olga, who's still alive today, we call her Sinci affectionately. It means mouse in Hungarian. Uh, she, she would get mad at me if I told you the age, but I'll just say she's an Octagarian, and she's in great health. Um, but she and my, my grandfather, Shigmon, had married, and she was 18 and he was 19. And uh, my grandfather, my biological grandfather, was killed in a landmine accident in World War I. And uh, almost nine months to the day later, um, my, my grandmother then conceives my mom. And so you can sort of put the things together and go, wait a minute, almost nine months later? And this was one thing my mom used to preach to me, which I think gives insight to my values. My mom used to say all the time, my life is not a mistake, Rob, and therefore your life is not a mistake. You have a responsibility to do something with the gifts that God has given you and with the talents that God has given you and to develop um, and to make this world a better place than when you found it. And that's been a guiding principle of my mom. It's been a guiding principle of me to this day. 
And, and in 1983, 84, um, my, my stepdad and I, who I alluded to earlier, were not really getting along, and my mom thought it would be a good idea for me to get a break. So I actually went back to Budapest, went to school for um, almost a year there to become immersed in the language and learn our language, Hungarian. Um, and it was just a great growing experience around independence. Um, it was, in 1984, it was all communist. There was, from where I was staying to the school I was going to, the largest Russian military base was there. It was fully occupied. Um, you know, things you see on TV today about marching and guns and tanks, that was, that was Hungary at the time. And there I was as a 13-year-old dropped into this country uh, to learn the language, to learn the culture for my ancestors. I don't think any of us knew that, that the Russian occupation was going to fall apart in 1991, but I was there um, on a swimming trip training with one of their national teams. And um, I can still remember this day, Aaron, looking out my window and seeing the Russian tanks rolling out of town and, and basically retreating back to, to Russia and the country having to figure out this new form of democracy and, you know, Yugoslavia war breaking out and no one knowing if it's going to spill over into Budapest or not. And um, so I stayed, I shortened my stay just out of safety concern reasons for my mom. I was 19 years old and then came back to the U.S., finished my schooling and finished my swimming here. So it's, it's very much formed my, uh, my DNA, my culture is, is certainly my Hungarian ancestry has. Yeah, and that's scary. I mean, I, I remember when I was uh, there the first time in 1989 and what was Leningrad uh, in the Soviet Union, certainly nothing as scary as that. But you did see soldiers at the airport and in the streets, and it did have a little bit of that, you know, hanging over you presence where by 91 it was Russia and things were starting to loosen up. So um, thank you for sharing that story. That's, that's very cool. Uh, and, you know, it's nice that you have that as an inspiration to, to guide you forward. I do want to talk a little bit about something that I was particularly intrigued with that, you know, you and Aaron mentioned on the, the podcast you had done earlier on the, the brand on purpose. And that is that you all are incredibly dedicated to keeping the money that you collect local. So if there's a swim in Long Island, it goes to firms or organizations in Long Island, all the way down to having bank accounts separate for those. This is a unique model. And I, a, I think it's amazing, but B, it must create some logistical headaches. So talk a little bit about, you know, why that's important and, you know, why it is you're willing to overcome, I'm sure, some of the bureaucratic nature of having to keep those things straight for the sake of focusing on local. There's, there's an impact, a value impact that we have, which is to, to know where your money goes. And um, I was just in Denver last week and visiting the Children's Hospital of Denver where we made a $185,000 grant. And we can tell you down to the penny how much Dr. Winters received and how much Dr. Green received. And they were both there in order to share the impact of their uh, leukemia research and their glioblastoma research for children, pediatrics, um, with our 50 or so core leaders that we had and core supporters that were there. Multiply that out times our 21 different communities that we have. It's not easy. Um, it's, I don't even know if it's replicatable. Um, it's, it's not easy to scale. Uh, but to your point, we do have 21 operating accounts, and we have a national operating account. We have one charity, which is Swim Across America. We have one 501c3 designation. And all of our swims operate underneath that umbrella. And Swim Across America absorbs all of the legal, the insurance, the risk, the credit card fees on the national side. 
And then our SWIMs, our local leads in each community can go in and, and visually look at their bank account and say, oh my gosh, this is how much we've generated in online donations or check donations this week. And it's a source of pride. It's a source of inspiration for them. And then those, those participants, if you're in Denver or you're in Baltimore, they just, they really know that the money is not redistributing. And the idea that there's community here and there's a sense of charm here and there's a sense of entrepreneurism within the local swims that resonates. And that's what drove our, our stickiness. And we have some swims now that are going on 30 plus years. And we have some swims that are going on 10 and 20 years as well. And that's really difficult to sustain um, when every December we drain our bank account down and the swim has to start back over again, the charity swim does. Um, but it's because those local volunteers have bought into the value that money raised local stays local. But here's the really, really um, multiplier cool part of the story, Aaron, is that the impact, the benefits don't reside just within those communities. We have been funding immunotherapy. We've been funding personalized medicine. We've been funding CAR-T. We've been funding um, you know, uh, new detections. And those might occur within a hospital in, say, New York, Memorial Sloan Kettering. But the benefits can benefit anybody, not just even in the U.S., but even other countries where there might not be traditional access to medicine, whether it's immunotherapy, personalized medicine, or so forth. We really believe in the value of, of research, though. That's where our model is gravitated towards. Young investigators within a hospital who have a whiteboard idea on fighting a cancer research or coming up with a new cure, but there's just there's no one there to fund it yet. And we love to think of ourselves as an angel charity. We play that role where it can be up to two hundred fifty to $500,000. Maybe it's over a two-year or three-year period of time. But this seed money will then help an oncologist move forward where they can go get the Holy Grail, which might be the NIH funding. It might be commercial funding. It might be a larger foundation that will come in and take what we have funded and sort of bridge it forward. What's been interesting over the last 10 years is, is the value of our funding now over six, seven million dollars a year has allowed us to participate in conversations with the V Foundation or LLS. And so we're starting to do some matching grant programs where, you know, the V Foundation will put X amount in and maybe we put Y amount in or vice versa. And so we sort of amplify the impact of both of our organizations into funding very intentionally some, some research within a hospital or a novel idea. Well, again, it's, it's, I like the approach, uh, as someone that was personally affected from with glioblastoma, I lost my mother-in-law and aunt over the last, uh, 18 months to this horrible disease. And I know in talking to Dr. James Allison, who is the Nobel prize winner for medicine in 2018. And, and the fact that we are just starting to scratch the surface on that, there's no one that appreciates that more than me and, and my family. So, uh, thank you for, for doing such amazing work. I do want to speak a little bit to, I guess, bringing this back around to work. Um, one of the things that you've noted in a variety of places is that the multiplying power of getting organizations involved, and I know in particular you mentioned, I think, 7-Eleven and Merck. Merck is a, you know, a, a client yeah. of ours as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about why beyond just the money that's so powerful. We've coined something. Um, volunteering is the new happy hour. And back to the, the community side of, of what we offer, um, we rely on, gosh, a couple thousand volunteers a year. Um, they could be everywhere from our event lead to people helping us put on our charity swims to the social media programs we run to the, to the junior mentoring boards we have within those communities. 
And so what makes Swim Across America so attractive and sticky is that people can donate and more importantly, they can come and they can volunteer and they can give their time and they can find a place where they can see impact. Um, you know, our charity swims typically are maybe up to 500 or so participants. So they're not like mass running events or cycling events. They're not spread out over multiple days and they're not starting in an A location and finishing in a B location. Typically our charity swims might be a half mile up to two miles or three miles. Um, and so that allows people to, to come out at seven o'clock in the morning and be done by 10 or 11 so they can get a four or five hour volunteer experience. They can meet everybody. They can meet all the oncologists. And it just creates this really charming, charming charity experience for people. And so companies like Merck, companies like 7-Eleven, they're looking for places and it's being driven within the employees of their companies that are asking for an opportunity to do more volunteerism and more give back. Um, KPMG is another one. We have we have 10 charity swims where KPMG has their local offices uh, that are participating within our swims. Clear Channel as well uh, is now involved in about eight of our charity swims where they have multiple offices through their what they call their spirit days that are taking a Friday or taking a Saturday and saying, let's go out and do a team building experience and let's go give back. Um, much I think like Habitat for Humanity has done within their space, we've been able to do it within our space. Um, where volunteers can, can participate as much as they want and whatever their time and their constraints and their interests allow them. So we have a lot of people that come and, and not everybody swims. I think there's this misnomer, oh my gosh, I need to be a great, really great story here. We did a charity swim with Michael Phelps last year. And one of his asks, one of his peer asks was, please don't run a clock because I'm not doing this to compete. And I'm doing this to swim with my age group coach who's been diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, in Michael's world, that's completely fair and understandable. He doesn't want someone waving an iPhone or um, something they saw on the Internet that I beat Michael Phelps in a charity swim. That's not why Michael was doing this. Um, and so all of our Olympians that come and give back, they're swimming side by side with someone. They're swimming with a survivor. They're swimming with an oncologist. You know, they're giving of their time and they're doing this out of the spirit of the cause. And so you'll find when you come to our charity swims, we're not running a clock. We're not publishing who's first, second, or third in your age group. What we are acknowledging, Aaron, is Aaron Strout was the number one fundraiser. Um, you know, Jim Weiss was the number two fundraiser and Barbara Palmer was the number three fundraiser. That's our scoreboard. That's our podium. And that's who we want to acknowledge at our charity swims. Well, that's great. And I would love it if the, those three were actually true, although we definitely do all collectively give back. So, uh, and now that you're more firmly on my radar, I will definitely make sure that I am directing some funds your way and maybe even some volunteering time your way. Um, this is the time that I do like to get into some of the, the lighter, more fun questions. Uh, and I know that we, I want to be respectful of time because I think we're, we're going to bump up against it. So we'll do these maybe a little bit more in, in rapid fire fashion and we'll end with how do people get involved and where do we want to send them? So the one I like to ask, this is a newer question, but if you had a magic lantern and could be granted one wish, what would it be and why? I would sort of bucket it this way. And, and out of that lantern would come, uh, I think a sense of more kindness from people. Mm. Um, we live in a, a world today that's very polarized and sometimes we're lacking in empathy and people um, just want to hear themselves talk and yell and shout. And, you know, that could be social media and otherwise can, can we just sort of tone things down a little bit and have perhaps a little bit more empathy, which can lead to kindness. Well, amen to you. And you're right. Like this is, <laughs> we could absolutely use this more than anything right now. So I like that. And uh, very, very true to your giving back to uh, humanity and, and society. 
Um, the second question is if, if uh, you would be willing to share, I always like to find out something that people may not know about you. you you're out there and you're pretty public, but uh, maybe a little secret, not a good secret uh, that you're willing to share with the audience. Oh, this one's easy. It's, it's, it's a brag secret, if you will. I have nine-year-old twin boys. Um, my wife, Allison, and I do. Um, Max and Beckett, they just turned nine. They're in third grade. And it's a delight for me to drive them to school every single morning. Most swimmers want to swim early in the morning between, you know, 5.30 and 7.30. I'm, I'm up at 5.30 or earlier making breakfast for them, getting them ready to go. Um, our car ride time is 20 minutes to school. And it's, it's a time when we just, just the three of us, we get into some of the most fun and cool conversations that um, I hope they will remember and be able to pass on when they have kids. Oh, that's good. And that's a great age. I have a almost 21-year-old, 18-year-old, and 12-year-old. So those are a little bit in my distant uh, blinders, but our rearview mirror. But uh, that, that that is a, a great opportunity to be able to do that. And uh, I'm sure it's doubly the, the opportunity with twins. Uh, the next question is, I do like to find out what my guests are reading. And uh, I just participated in uh, 10 books in 10 days on Facebook, which made me sort of really dig back in and think. But anything that you've read recently or that's inspired you that you would like to, to share with the audience? Yeah, you know, and at and top of our list for my wife and I, we both, um, we both value the Bible. And so that is, that's one for us. Um, and I know it's for a lot of people, but even aside to that, I'm, I'm, I picked up again, and I'm rereading David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And you, your, your listeners, and you maybe have sensed a little bit of my personality that I'm, I'm much more of David. I went to a school that has a, a Southern on the end of it. I call it a directional school. Um, I gravitate towards organizations that have to grit, to grind, and have true passion. Um, I think much like David did. And um, so David, David and Goliath is where I'm at now. I like that. I do not think that in the 120 plus episodes we've done of the show, anyone has uh, touched on that one or the Bible, which was a little surprising since that is so foundational. Last up, um, this is a little bit more of a fun one, and that is that you're uh, on a proverbial deserted island. You can only take one album with you, ideally not a greatest hits. Which album would it be? (laughs) Can I pick a podcast? You sure can. So I'm in the middle of this podcast series now. It's called Wicked Games, and it takes uh, it's about a 45, 50 minute look at every presidential election from George Washington all the way up through what we're going to experience in 2020. Um, it is just so cool. Uh, you know, there's history we learn in class, and then there's history that they bring to life through podcasts and movies. And this one takes an in-depth look at every election. What was going on at the times? What was the tone? What were the major issues of the country? Um, what was driving the interest of the, of the people? Um, so I'm just, the one they've recently released where I'm up to now is after uh, Lincoln had been assassinated. Um, so, so that's where I'm at. And I know... Uh, through 44, 45, I guess, podcasts, it would definitely um, fill up my time on a deserted island. Well, that's awesome. Um, I'm actually going to add that to my podcast queue. So that's particularly useful given the fact that it's not always easy to uh, dive into a book. But uh, you said it was Wicked Games. Was that the name of it? Yeah, Wicked Games. The author is uh, Lindsey Graham, and it's um, it's impeccably produced. Uh, great scores to it, great storytelling. Um, but as best they can, they try and base it in as much actual, um, factual history that they have from that time. 
Well, that's excellent. And uh, kudos for going off the beaten path and, and doing a podcast for us as an album and a particularly useful one. So with that, I will wrap <laughs> maybe us a little, up. Maybe a little boring, but that's where I'm at. I right don't now. know. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that people are really asking right now is, uh, you know, has this ever happened before? And, you know, I think knowing that there's some precedent in history to some of these things, I don't know if it's comforting or maybe it scares the heck out of people, but um, it certainly is nice to to go back in time and, and walk through some of these and find out how they went down. You know, you should go back to the days of not, not you, but, uh, but all of us should go back to days and look at like when Henry Clay was, uh, you know, in the office in the 1820s. I mean, they settled things through duels for goodness yeah. sakes, Republicans, Democrats, they didn't like each other. It's like, let's go do a duel or someone have a cane and they just would, you know, beat someone up or someone would pull a gun out from under their table, literally in Congress. I mean, that's how that was the times then. And, you know, the rhetoric of the, the media, the newspapers um, and who was bought, and who was sold and who was in whose pocket. Um, in some ways, I think history does tend to repeat itself just with different technologies and, and mediums and hopefully not as much violence, which is back to that, you know, if you had a genie and you could open the bottle up, what would you wish for? I think empathy and kindness. Yeah. Yeah. There's just one further note on that before we do wrap up. Uh, there's a woman named Heather Cox Richardson, who uh, some people may read. Um, she writes on Substack and a lot of people share her on Facebook. But she's talking about the election, and she did talk about the fact that 1850, 1890, 1920, you had similar sort of strong yeah. figures in, uh, in power that sort of took over and, and a walk back through that. So this will be a nice juxtaposition to, to that. And uh, with that, uh, this is Aaron Stroud, CMO of W2O, host of the What's to Know podcast. I've had the pleasure of, of spending the last 30 minutes with Rob Butcher of Swim Across America. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your story. And before we go, I do want to, I promise this, how do people get involved? Where should they go? And if, you know, both from a personal and from a corporate perspective. Super easy. Swimacrossamerica.org. You can find the 21 communities that we have our charity swims and more information is there. And, um, you know, our website by design has only got about 30, 40 pages. So people won't get lost and find a charity swim in their community. Great. And then uh, I think you had mentioned on your other podcast with Aaron that if you wanted to do a corporate reach out that you would be the right person to uh, ping. And I'm assuming people can get in touch with you via the website. I am. All my info's on there. We're lean staff. There's only seven of us. Um, so it's real easy to find me off swimacrossamerica.org or LinkedIn or any other social platforms that you might be uh, tuned into. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Rob. This has been great and really appreciate your time. You too, Aaron. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.